Let me begin with the word of prayer, and then I'd like to do a brief review of the first three weeks of our series here on discipling, and then we'll uh, transition into the next several weeks, and specifically, obviously, uh, look at what we're going to see this morning. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the deep, deep love of Jesus. Thank you for your love and sending him to the cross, and thank you for his love and and willing to sacrifice Himself for our sake. We uh, deserve nothing less than Your full and uh, merited wrath. But, but because of Your mercy, because of Christ's love for us, we receive much less than that. In fact, the very opposite of that. He took upon Himself the wrath that we deserved, and we now receive a place as sons and daughters of You. We are adopted into Your family. And so we praise You for your deep love for us and Christ's love for us and the Holy Spirit's uh, holding us together as He strengthens us in our understanding of you, Your love for us and, and your, uh, your Word. And we pray that You would uh, strengthen us today through Your Holy Spirit as He uh, enlightens us as we look into Your Word and consider the, the truth, the meaning of the text as well as the application for us. Give us the strength to do so and remove the distractions and the uh, illusions that we have in our mind or disillusionment and to help us to understand and see Your Word clearly for all of its glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we started in week one with a definition of discipleship, uh, which I didn't list for you here again, but it is uh, the intentional encouragement of Christians on the basis of deliberate, loving relationships and training in God's Word. So it is uh, the, one of the key words there is intentional. We want to do this on purpose. Discipleship uh, is not automatic. It, it requires some effort on our part. It requires some effort on our church's part. And so we want to think about it intentionally, encouraging other believers on the basis of a deliberate uh, and loving relationship. Um, it doesn't happen passively. We talked about the idea that we're trying to get God's truth into their life. And in order for that to happen, we need to be the conduit, the pipeline by which that truth gets there. And uh, so so we, we intentionally reach out to other people in that way. In week two, we thought about reasons why we should disciple. And surprisingly, the first reason that we looked at was for our own joy. Uh, we would think that this is a little bit selfish or self-serving, but we saw from Paul's example that Paul's great joy in the fruit of discipling uh, came from his work in ministering in others. And that's not a bad thing because our joy can actually result in God's glory. And certainly in the case of discipling, as well as many other spiritual disciplines, we can take joy in these uh, these areas and God at the same time can receive glory. And so we want to um, certainly be careful about how much uh, we take credit for it. Certainly we need to pass that on to, to God um, or deflect that on to God. Uh, we, we seek to, to um, sow seed and, and see it watered and grow, but ultimately God is the one who gives the increased, uh, increase. We simply are privileged to be a means that God uses to help others. But our joy and God's glory are the two primary reasons why we should disciple. Week three, last week we thought about barriers and excuses and fears in discipling. Remember some of the examples, you know, I don't want to be in a position of authority. 
Like if I'm in a position of authority, then that person will think that I'm trying to lord it over them. But just because we do have a position where we're helping someone or we are in a position where we're more mature than someone else and and we may even have a position of authority over them doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing. You know, our, our society uh, looks down on authority and, and promotes individualism and, uh, you know, we we got to have our own thoughts and don't let them control you type things, but that's not what the Scriptures teach by any means. Certainly, there are abuses of authority and... Um, and we got to watch out for that when we're in a discipling relationship, but um, but that's not a legitimate excuse. Second excuse we or one of the other excuses was I don't have the time to do it. And and what what we did was we saw that you know when we look at the scriptures we see that it's really about priority. It's not whether we don't have enough time. It's about priority. Do we want to do this for God's glory? Is this something that we see as valuable? And if we do, then we'll make time, even with with those of you who have insane schedules that that are just from from uh you know from dawn till dusk you're just constantly working we all have time to do what we want to do and uh discipling certainly is ought to be a priority well for the next few weeks we're going to start narrowing our focus a bit as we study uh some different aspects of discipling like studying the scripture together or reading a book together or ministering to hurting people but today, uh, we want to look at how discipling can bring about personal holiness in both the people uh, who are being discipled and in the people who are actually doing the discipling. And so my goal is that we understand the place of holiness in our discipling relationships and um, want to think about how we can practically encourage that both in, in our own lives as we seek to disciple others and in the life of the person that we're trying to disciple. All right, so let's uh, move into the uh, the content for this lesson. The ultimate goal of discipling is obedience. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 1 with me. Philippians chapter 1. Discipling ultimately comes down to obedience to Christ's Word and commands that that is our great goal in discipling we're not doing this just so that we can get uh, another notch on our belt or we can tell other people what great disciplers we are Uh, we're not doing this because we're we're sick of dealing with problems and we need to get rid of the problems that are in other people so maybe if we head it off no the, the great goal in discipling is obedience a person can read all the christian books in the world or pray uh, with an older Christian every day, but there's not real change unless the disciple is actually growing in obedience to Christ. If they're going through all these studies with you and they're praying with you, uh, but they're not obeying, then they actually haven't been discipled or they haven't responded properly to discipling. It's not simply about behavior modification. Okay, this is, this goes back to our our series on uh, counseling. You know, the the ultimate goal is not to just change the external uh, shell of a person so that we get them to 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 be our cookie cutter little Christian that we want to see that they're not doing certain things on the outside, but inside they're you know like the Pharisees, full of dead men's bones. It's ultimately about a changed heart. So, if that's the case, then we need to think carefully about discipling. 
And I would suggest that obedience is an important goal of that uh, of this relationship that that we should have. So two reasons why obedience is important for our discipling relationship. First, obedience is important because God is glorified through the way that we live. God is glorified in our lives as we display His character in the world around us. Uh, in the world around us, not just by what we say, but by how we live. And if we call ourselves Christians but live in a way that's clearly contrary to God's character, then we actually are misrepresenting God. And just to, to highlight this point, look at Philippians 1. And would someone read verses 9 through 11? Okay, so what does Paul want for them? That's found in verse 9. Okay. He wants your love to abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Okay, now the next question we need to answer is why? Why is Paul so eager about their love or their growth in, in knowledge and discernment? Look at the next verse. So that. So that you may approve or discern the things that are excellent. So Paul's saying, listen, I have a goal for you. I want to see you grow in the knowledge and, and, and in all discernment and love. And, and the reason for that is so that you can, you can be discerning on your own. It's similar to a, a parent-child relationship. You know, um, We can tell our kids what they need to do and they can conform for a time. But if we're doing that when they're 35 years old, you know, that's a problem. We, we haven't really done our job very well as a parent. We want to get them to a place where they actually can be discerning on their own. See, at the beginning, we, we are being discerning for them. Right? A, a little child, a little infant, they can't make discerning choices on their own. They can make choices, but they can't make discerning ones very well. Okay? It takes time. We develop that in them. We're, we're trying to see that grow in them so that as they grow, hopefully as they get close to being moving out of the house, they have some discernment. They're able to move on and make choices. And Paul's saying that's the same thing in the Christian life. You see, uh, at the beginning, you need to lean on me pretty heavily. Okay? Lean on me pretty heavily. Follow my example. But, but over time, you should get to a place where you can start making these choices. You shouldn't have to say, Hey, Paul, what do you think about this doctrine of Scripture? Okay? Not, not that that's a bad thing to go and seek you know, counsel. Um, but... But ultimately, if you're doing that about everything in life, then you're like that 35-year-old who's still living at home and who doesn't know how to make discerning choices. Okay, Paul wants to see them do this. And notice what it ultimately results in at the end of the, ver- or, uh, end of the passage there. Verse 11, "...having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God." So, Paul wants for them to grow in love, knowledge, and discernment He wants it so that they are discerning on their own and the result will be that this will will be the fruit of their righteousness and will result in praise to God. Okay, so obedience is important because God is glorified through the way that we live. And as we live in such a way that's consistent with the gospel that we believe, it actually commends the gospel, doesn't it? it? It commends the gospel to other people. 
shows them that it, it is worthy of being believed, that God is worthy of being followed and, and worshipped. Second, obedience is important because it's a mark of true Christians. Obedience is a mark of true Christians. It springs from those who love God. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan uh, preacher, spent a, a great deal of time considering all the marks of conversion that, that come with the, the work of the Spirit uh, during the time of the Great Awakening. And in, in the end, he finally concluded that growth in personal holiness over time is the most universal and most reliable evidence of a true work of the Spirit. You want to see if the Spirit is really at work in a person's heart, in a person's life? See how they are responding in personal holiness. They're making holy choices. And I think Edwards was correct, and the same is true for us today. That as we love Christ more, as we are filled with the Spirit more and more, I hope you recognize there are levels of filling. The, the filling idea is, is the idea of controlling, okay? that, that we ought to be controlled by the Spirit. And we aren't fully controlled by the Spirit all the time. We need to be. But, but as we become more and more controlled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, then we will, uh, it will show itself in external change of life. See, if we work on the external, all the, all the, the rules and the, 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 you know, the, the conformity on the outside, if we work on that and not on the heart, then we're, not going to get, we're going to lose both, really, is what going to, what's going to happen. We can get somebody to conform on the outside while their hearts are still corrupt. But if we work on the heart... We see them change. We see them understand God's truth for what it is, see it in the Scriptures for themselves and see why they ought to be doing it this way and then start doing it. Then the outside is going to change. And we'll get both. Okay, So that's why it's important to do it from inside out rather than from outside in. Now, why do I say that obedience is a true mark of a Christian? Um, let me just have some people look up a few passages here. Um, John fourteen fifteen, Retta, and uh, Bill, First John one three to six, and I got a couple others for later. Someone else want to read for me? Paul, John five twenty four, Jonathan, uh, Romans eight thirteen and fourteen, and Sandra, Mark two five. So we'll get to those in just a second. Okay, but first, we want to see the connection between love. And obedience, and hopefully this verse kind of came to your mind as we were working through this. But John fourteen fifteen. Okay, so there there is this inescapable link between our love for Christ and our obedience to Christ. Our love for Christ comes from a desire to please Him. We don't just automatically obey Christ. We do it as we grow in love, and that's why our affections are so important to the Christian life. You can't just coldly walk through the Christian life and expect to see any change. You need to be affected. There ought to be some emotional um, uh, there, there ought to be some emotional feelings really welling up inside of you when you think about the cross, when you think about the resurrection, when you think about God's love for you, when you think about the deep, deep love of Jesus. Okay? And as that happens, as our love increases, as our love uh, overflows, it responds in obedience. I want to follow you, Christ. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will obey my commands. You will do what I say. First John 1, 3-6.
Okay, so how do we know that we're in Christ according to 1 John? It's by our obedience. Okay, uh, this is a message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light, in Him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in dar- darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Okay, so a person who says, I know Christ, I am a Christian, and they walk in darkness, John says they're a liar. Okay, because Christians obey God's commands. They, they obey Christ's commands. Now, that might sound like a harsh statement by John, um, that they're a liar, but it's important for us to know that the final test of Christianity is a changed life which is seen in increased personal holiness. And so this means that one reason that we want to help someone live a life that is seen and expressed in greater obedience is because that obedience will give them an opportunity to show the love that they have for God. That our obedience is not like, um, you know, we're, we're putting ourselves up on a pedestal and say, hey, look at me, what a great person I am. But, but as we obey and we do it humbly, then, then what naturally results is that people see that we love God. Um, it's similar to, you know, the child maybe that you knew when you were young, maybe a sibling, maybe it was um, another believer, maybe it was someone in your school, but, but you saw that they were serious about obeying their parents. And that told you something about what they thought about their parents. It told you that they loved their parents. Okay, And then you have other people who, I don't care what my dad has to say, he told me to be in at this time, I'm not going to be in at that time. Uh, and that tells you, about their love for their parents. Okay? And the same thing is true with us as Christians. We should not be surprised when people are like, well, you say you love God, but I mean, you live just like me. You know, an unbeliever might say that. Um, but obedience is the true mark of a believer and it, and it responds from a, a genuine love. Um, so, if someone is a Christian, they will obey God. That's true and that yeah that's part of our responsibility as a discipler uh one of the things that we need to think about here before we move on to the next point is that sometimes we think well isn't obedience an expression of faith and i would say yes it is an expression of faith and so if we continue with that logic we would say well faith is something that that god has already put in the person right he's given them faith we believe, and so won't obedience naturally result from it, right? I mean, if it's already going to happen, then it would be like us going out into the garden with these flowers that haven't bloomed yet, and we we start painting things on them to make it look like flowers, to brighten the colors. Maybe we massage the leaves a little bit. And so maybe our discipleship is like that. Like, well, God's already put the faith in them. They're going to obey, so why do we have to get down there on our hands and knees and and work on the ground. I don't think that's the way the, the Scriptures talk about our discipling. Rather, instead, it's more like us, and we have something that hasn't yet bloomed, Okay, but we, we still want to tend that flower, don't we? 
We want to we want to water it. We want to make sure that the weeds are are clear. We want to make sure that it's getting plenty of sun. And what the, what's the result as we do that work? Okay, the result is that we actually will see in due time we're going to see the flowers bloom. And um, so just as the the water is necessary and all the different nutrients are necessary and God's hand in their growth is necessary, I would say this. Also, your help in their spiritual growth is necessary uh, also. So that means that, you know, with the flower example, your tending of that flower is critical to that flower's growth, even though God is the one who causes the growth. Jennifer? Yeah. Yeah, the trellis idea. There's a book uh was written not too long ago called The Trellis and the Vine and the idea is one of discipleship that everyone ought to be uh, you know, working on discipleship. You know, the best trellises are not necessarily the ones that are the biggest and the prettiest. The best ones are the ones that actually do what they're supposed to do. You know, they they hold the flowers to to it and then they get out of the way. You know, it's like the scaffolding on the building. You know, they they get the work done and then they, they get out of the way and let the the building be seen for what it is. Um yeah, that's that's a good example. Uh we you know, we need each other in that way. We need each other to to tend us and to show us where, hey, you're starting to you're starting to keel over here. Death is looming. Okay, spiritual death is is on the other side if you continue down this path. And so let me let me tie you up here. This is not going to be fun for a little while. You don't have as much freedom as you had before. But but if you want to see genuine fruit, then then you ought to be willing to to see this change happen. All right. Any other thoughts on on that part? Questions? Okay. So don't think of it like I am forcing them to obey. Uh, you know, like I'm trying to squeeze the, the, the flower out of the stem, but rather I'm going to tend it. I'm going to put water on it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to see, you know, that God will, will do the work. Um, and, and that's the amazing paradox of our relationship with other, really the amazing paradox between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, that God has already determined what's going to happen, right? Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will continue it till the day of Christ. So, from start to finish, it's all God. But, at the same time, He says, he, he says to, uh, to believers in Hebrews 10 to, um, to encourage one another daily. That's actually Hebrews 3. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So, why, why God give us a commandment to encourage other people if you're already going to do the, the work from start to finish? And the answer is that, that God actually causes the growth through means. Just like with the flower, right? He determined what's going to happen from the very beginning with how that flower would grow, but He also does it through means, through the gardener, through the, the farmer who's going to, to work with it. So God alone is the one who's responsible for the the uh, the results, but He also depends upon us in in a way. Okay, We say that God depends upon us. It sounds kind of bad, but God has chosen to to use us to accomplish His purposes. We'll talk about that more in the morning service with regard to God's sovereignty and prayer in Daniel chapter 9. All right. Any thoughts? Questions? Bill. Uh, I don't know that I heard this, this 
Yeah, and, and I would say that what you're doing, like just for example, you and Greg, that is a form of discipleship. That's a mutual discipleship. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that, that there can be a mutual discipleship that happens, a mutual encouragement that you're encouraging him, Greg's encouraging you. When you see things in Greg that, you know, I don't know about that, you know, you take them to Scripture, show them, and Greg sees something in you and say, what about this? And And that's... That's it. So what I'm calling for here, what I think the Scriptures are calling for, is not a formal discipleship where, okay, once a week, you and I are going to meet, I'm going to tell you how to live as a Christian, and and then you get back to me and let me know how it turned out. Okay, that That's not what I'm calling for. So what you're doing, I think, is a form of discipleship and ought to be done in a more intentional way, is what I'm suggesting, is that, okay, you ought to be looking for people... Uh, within the church who are weak in whatever areas, if it's doctrine, if it's practice, if it's life, whatever, and you're thinking of ways, how can I encourage them rather than exasperate them? Okay, lead them on. Uh, we'll talk about that more here in just a second, but but lead them on to anger and like, how dare he come, come after me on that, Paul? Right. So as you are learning from someone else, but then you're also looking for someone else to help disciple because there's always someone who knows less of the Scripture than us and who is living less consistently with the Scripture than us. We should be looking for people like that and seeking to to help them in some way. Um, Okay. Encouraging holiness in in the disciple. Or we could say the disciple. Okay. But how, how is it that we can encourage holiness in the life of someone? Let's start by... Uh, making a distinction between what happens immediately and what becomes a gradual process. So, the Bible talks about several things that change immediately upon conversion. So, let's think about that first. John 5.24. Who had that one? Okay. So, we have this you know the the passage in I think it's First Corinthians that um, five seventeen where um, 
we become a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Here, Jesus says that when a person believes in Him, they have eternal life and they pass over from death into life. That at conversion, there is an immediate change of outlook uh, with that person. That, that, that makes a, a huge difference in the way that they think about God and they think about themselves and they think about the, the laws of God. Um, and so that, that's a change that happens immediately. Next, Romans eight thirteen to 14. Okay, so everyone who is being led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So we could say that backward. Who, or we could ask the question, who are the sons of God? Who are the children of God? It is those who are being led by the Spirit. So that means that at conversion, every single believer is being led by the Spirit of God. Maybe not to the degree that they ought to be, but they are being led by the Spirit of God. So that's an immediate change. They're passed from death to life, John 5.24, and the Holy Spirit resides in them and helps them to change. And Mark 2.5. Okay, another thing that happens immediately is that our sins are forgiven. There's an immediate effect at conversion. It's not a progressive thing where, okay, I, I'm going to forgive some of your sins, but let's see how you do for a little while, and then I'll determine if I'm going to let you into heaven. No, it's a, it's an immediate and final thing. It's called justification. It's it's a declaring to be righteous. Um, he is newly converted disciple of Christ. He's no longer what he once was. He now has a new status, new life. New joy in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that all of his bad habits and cravings will magically vanish. Okay, does anybody have an example of coming to Christ and completely denying every single sin that you once enjoyed and, and took pleasure? Uh, of course not. We we'd still have the sinful cravings of the flesh, and in order, but 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 what this means is that that Christ has power over sin, that no longer is sin our master. This is ha- something that happens immediately. Read Romans 6 sometimes. I don't think I have this on your sheet. No, but Romans 6 talks about our responsibility to to kill sin. Okay, John Owen said it this way. I mentioned this before. But um, if you're not killing sin, then sin is killing you. And he gets that from Romans 6. Okay, Mortify the deeds of the flesh. You need to kill them or else they will kill you. Um, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 talk about the same idea that that you know we have this war going on within us between the Spirit and the flesh. And and we have to recognize that that's something that's going to to plague us for... Uh, plague us. Okay, that is the sin will plague us. The Holy Spirit's not a plague. That's a good thing. Um, but we often go about things in a backwards way when we want to... to to help someone in discipling. We look at the bad habits, we look at the bad cravings, and we expect that all of those things will go away. Because, hey, if you're a Christian, those shouldn't be in your heart at all. But that's not the right way to think about it. Don't think that once you show someone their sin, they're automatically or immediately going to respond to that sin. The way I often say it is that it took a long time for you to get to this level of your love for the sin, of your committing of the sin, it's going to take a long time for you to get out of it. Okay, 
sometimes God works in a great way. You know, I've heard of people who, you know, were drunks before they came to Christ, and then they came to Christ and they gave that up completely, cold turkey. Okay, that that happens. But generally speaking, okay, even as Christians who have been saved for a long time, sin doesn't just get eradicated overnight. You know, I've been uh, okay. Let, let's take a person who's who's involved in pornography. Okay, and they, they've been they've been looking at it and lusting after it and 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 having all these fantasies for years and years and years as a Christian, and then they decide one day I want to stop. Is that how it works? Hey, not not likely. Hey, those things are there because it's been built into the fabric of their minds. And it's going to take a long time to eradicate that. I, I would suggest that's a battle that's going to happen all the way to eternity. Okay, not that we should give up on it and say, well, if we can't fully eradicate it, you know, I can't fully have victory over my sin, then I'm going to give up and just allow it to happen. That's not the idea. But what we should see is within discipleship relationships or discipling relationships, don't expect that when you confront a person with their sin, they're automatically going to change. Okay. Um, uh, sometimes it takes a long time. The change, genuine spiritual change, happens over a long period of time. Um, just like you know, okay, let's go back to the gardening illustration. Your garden is a mess. You know, you got you got weeds everywhere. It's been choking out the life of all these plants. And and the next day the the gardener says, You know what? I want to see life in these plants. And so what does he do? He pulls out all the weeds, he makes sure that it has plenty of water, and he comes back the next day, and what does he see? He sees the same same thing as he saw before, right? I mean it looks different because the weeds aren't there, but does he see a lot of life in the plants that were supposed to be growing? Not the next day. He's got to keep tending it. He's got to keep watching for, uh, you know, for the weeds and, and pulling them. And um, and so we need to recognize that as a disciple, we're going to need some some serious uh, resolve to work with people uh, with their sin and recognize that, you know, what we're trying to develop in them is character, and and that character will produce a perseverance within them. Because if we're just there just saying, here's all the externals that need to be changed, change them. That's not going to that's not ultimately going to change them. We need to see help them to see from the scripture why this is a sin against God, why this is affecting your relationship with God and other people, why this is leading you potentially to destruction. This will destroy you. And we need to help them to see that for themselves. We don't just tell them that, we help them to see that. This is God speaking to you from his word. See that, and then, and then uh, change as a result of that. So let's think uh, quickly about how we encourage, how we encourage uh, holiness in the lives of of those we disciple. First, pray that God would give you insight into their struggles. We can't help a person if we don't know the struggles that that they're going through. So ask questions. This goes back to the counseling one, and pray that God will give you insight in, as to what is going on and how you can. Help them. Second, make sure that you discuss the models of obedience in Scripture and various biblical commands, um, so that so that they have some other lives to compare. You know, use the Bible as a diagnostic tool for them. That says, "Hey, listen. You know, you know, like when you got the check engine light on, something's going on in your engine. Hey, something's going on. Let me show you. Let me plug you into 
the scriptures here and show you what kind of diagnostic test comes out or, or uh, diagnostic um, report comes out from this test. Use the scriptures in that way. Third, don't shy away from sharing concerns you may have about other aspects of their lives. Okay, sometimes sin is clear and your job is to confront your friend with the reality of what they're doing. You know, do you understand that this is sinful? If you continue this way, uh, you, you will be destroyed. Um, but as is often the case, you know, we don't, we don't really, when we're being confronted with our sin, we don't really tell the whole story, do we? Okay, we, we only tell often or admit to as much as the other person already knows. We don't want to reveal any more. So, um, so, so you need to you need to uh, have a healthy suspicion of of what's going on. A healthy suspicion that says, "Listen, you know this doesn't look right. I, I don't know what it is because you're not giving me the whole story, but but this doesn't look right. And based on what I can see in the scripture, you need to change. There needs to be some serious change going on here." And uh, recognize that it may affect just it may affect more than one area of their life. Usually, we don't tend to compartmentalize our sin in that. Okay, we're really bad at you know let's say for, for lying example. You know we're really bad at lying to our spouse, but we never lie to our boss and we never lie to people at church. Just our spouse. Okay, that doesn't usually happen that way. Okay, back to the counseling illustration that I used. It's like going in the hotel down the, the hallway of the hotel rooms and you're peeking into each door and you're saying, okay, what do I see in there that's common in each area of their life? So the, the area of marriage, let's look in there. Okay. Okay. Let's look at the next one. This is the work. Okay. Let's look in here at church, how they act at church. Okay. So what's common in there? Well, it looks like all three of them have a bed. Okay. All three of them have a, a TV stand and a dresser. So the same thing with, as you're peeking into the various areas of their life through questions, you want to find out, okay, listen, here's the, the one area that I see that's how you treat your neighbors, okay, your actual neighbors in your neighborhood. Okay, how you treat them, this is what we're addressing, this is what's exploded, this is what's been become a big problem, but let me see what that's like. Do I see anything that's common in there in these other three rooms? Okay, and what you're going to find is that likely that is the case, and you want to help them to see that, you know, overall it comes from a, a corrupt heart, a heart that needs to be corrected and and the way that that's corrected is as the Holy Spirit helps them to see the the reality of the Word and and the necessity of it. Fourth, to the extent that God is doing good in their lives, don't shy away from holding yourself out as an example. We'll talk about this here in just a second. But okay, we all know that you're not perfect, and you all know that I'm not perfect. But it's okay to hold yourself out as an example. Okay, as a positive example. Um, certainly give credit to God for the good things that He's doing in you, but, but let them see how you treat your coworkers. Let them see how you treat your neighbors. Okay? And show them that this is what glorifies God because this is what the Scriptures say. Fifth, try as much as possible to ensure that whoever you disciple is under the authority of the local church. Okay? I, I think we can only get so far with someone when they're not a part of a local church, when they're not a member of a local church. Listen to this pastor from out east. Assistant pastor said his, he saw the value of uh, the local church in discipling. He said, Twice in my life, I've discipled individuals who became entangled in scandalous and unrepentant sin. 
In the one situation, that individual didn't at first agree what they were doing was sinful. And so we had long talks together and with other Christian friends who I knew that that person respected. But ultimately, because he was not a member of my church or any local church, at the end of the day, all I could offer was my sober opinion. He goes on to say, um, in the second situation, the individual again was involved in scandalous and unrepentant sin. He did not agree that his actions were sinful, at least not initially. But the great thing was that I was not on my own because he was a member of my church. And so I had help from others in the congregation, from the pastors, and finally from the church as a whole as they exercised church discipline by excluding him from membership. And that was discouraging and a difficult experience, but I knew that where my efforts ended, they were backed up by the stronger authority of an entire community of believing Christians. And so he says, here's how he concludes, church discipline is an important backstop as you encourage people toward personal holiness. So I'm not suggesting that you ought to view yourself or that I ought to view myself as the holiness police and that our job is to nitpick every little detail of life and how people live. Uh, For some of you, it may be a a great temptation to have this high-handed control over every other person in the church. And if so, then, then that needs to be addressed because that can actually inflict damage on other people if that's your intention. But the, but all that aside, we can, we can use this, misuse our responsibility as disciples. All that aside, we have a responsibility, Hebrews 10, to spur one another on to love and good works. And... And so that means we have to be careful with how we do it, but we need to be serious about what our goal is. Okay? We don't want to exasperate them. We don't want to, to anger them in the process and actually get offended and frustrated at God, but we do need to confront them with their sin. All right. Uh, move quickly in this last section. Holiness in the discipler. Okay, one of the ways, uh, uh, one way that you can avoid having an unhealthy attitude in discipling is that um, is that you ignore your own holiness. Okay, God can accomplish His purposes apart from you, but God chooses to use you. Listen to John 13, 15. Christ says to His disciples, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Here, Jesus models him, he, he uses Himself as a model for how they ought to live and how they ought to disciple. So, it's not just that He told them, hey, you're living in sin. He also showed them. This is what Paul was talking about. I think the one the surveys that I've heard with that one is, you know, you, you, you understand 20 of what you hear, and then it's like, I don't know, four, I think these are all made up, but 40% of what you see, and then it's like 80% or something of what you you or 60% of what you practice, and then 80% of what you teach. You, you retain all those things. So, but, but if we go with that idea, the second is not just what you hear from other people, it's what you see in them. Okay? Is this consistent with what they're saying? Hey, because we can say, so we're blue in the face, hey, this is how you ought to live, this is how, how you ought to live, but then if we're living differently, they're going to say, what about you? you know, if you're telling me I need to be in church all the time and you're, you're gone, you know, all, half half of the services, and why should I 
Why should I listen to you? You know, why should I think that that's of any value to you? And so I think uh, we need to be uh, we need to be growing in personal holiness. If we're going to hold this out as something that's good, then we need to we need to be growing ourselves and and also pointing to ourselves as an example. Okay. Uh, now you might think, well, that, wait a second, that, that sounds a little bit arrogant to point to ourselves as examples. But we have scriptural examples of what, how that happens. Paul did that regularly to Titus. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he says to Timothy, uh, set an example for the believers. So it's not just, well, if you're an apostle, then you know, then set yourself as an example. No, it's for Timothy, the pastor. You do it too. Set yourself as an example. People need something to follow. One of the ways that we can make sure that we are setting that example and we are remaining holy is by attending church, obviously, um, by regular personal time with the Lord, by re- regularly meditating on the character of God's Word, by accountability to other Christians, by serving other people. Um, you know, we're, we're just working to to shore up the areas of of obedience in our lives and as we do we can be a better help to people now you might be thinking well i'm far from that okay i'm I'm not where i need to be so i guess i can't disciple at all and i would say that in the areas okay in the the maturity level that you are you have the ability to help someone else along okay no matter where you are someone is less spiritually mature than you okay even if you've only been saved for a week someone is less spiritually mature than you. Find that person. Someone may be saved longer than you have been saved, but that's okay because some people, um, you know, like Hebrews, by now you should have been teachers. Okay, some people, uh, even though they've been saved for a long time, they haven't matured. And so you can even help people that are older than you spiritually. But hold yourself out as an example um, in order to do that. Make sure that you're following Christ yourself. All right. Any thoughts or questions? Discipling. Bill. Yep. Yeah, so that's another good point is that uh, not only must we be willing to help someone else in the discipling process, but we ought to be willing to be helped by other people. Um, we ought to have a thirst for for knowledge. We ought to be willing to accept correction. Proverbs talks about how the wise person does that. And uh, so that's that's all part of it. It's all part of uh, living for God. So a lot of, a lot of things to think through and and sometimes these kind of things can be a little bit daunting because it's like, wow, I'm not where I'm, I need to be. 
Um, but but we have um, we have the church, we have the Holy Spirit, we have Christ's work within us, and we can be sure that, that God wants to bring glory to Himself through us as we work in these areas. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us not to, to be uh, overwhelmed in a wrong way. Certainly Paul said uh, when he was thinking about the gospel ministry, who is adequate for such things? Um, and so we feel that way uh, to a measure. How, how could we possibly be effective in helping someone else grow when we're having trouble ourselves? And I think each of us could say that to some degree. Uh, so, Lord, help us to recognize that the strength, the power ultimately comes from You. Our job is to tend the, the plant and, and watch You do the growth. And so help us to be that tool in Your hands that, that brings about that tending and and that at the end we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.